Hi, church. Happy New Year. Welcome to The Rock. My name is Josh. We are continuing our study of the Book of Romans. Like Brian said, Christmas is over. We have started the new year, and this is part 33. I titled this message, Does Israel Have a Future? We're going to be in Romans chapter 11. You can turn there in your Bible, follow along on your handout. When I say Israel, I mean the Jewish people both ethnically and religiously. So do the Jews have a future? But before we dive into that question, I love to review. So season one, God's sentence. God is holy. We are not. We are sinful. Season two, we finish. God's salvation. God's righteousness by grace through faith in Christ. The best news ever. Season three, we did that. God's sanctification. God helping us believers grow in holiness and righteousness. And now we're almost done with season four, God's sovereignty. We've looked at God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. But most of chapters 9, 10, and 11 have been about the nation of Israel or the Jews. Chapter 9 talked about Israel's past. Chapter 10 talked about their present. And chapter 11, which we're starting right now, talks about Israel's future. These three chapters are kind of the deep end of the theological pool. We've been kind of wading through some deep theology. Brian is going to be starting in two weeks, season five, God's service. And the book of Romans is going to pivot from a lot of doctrine to application. So chapters 12 through 16 are going to be how to live the Christian life, a lot of practical, real world truth. But this week and next week, my teaching and Caleb's teaching are really part one and part two. These are significant section of verses talking about Israel's current rejection of Christ and getting into God's future plans for the nation of Israel. I have a number of introductory comments, and you might be intimidated by the number of verses I'm going to cover tonight. So buckle up. Long intro, and I'm going to fly. So it is remarkable to me how this tiny country is constantly part of our conversations. Obviously, the attacks on October 7th brought Israel way to the forefront around the whole planet. But this tiny country of 9 million people, 7,000 miles away, and we're discussing it. It's not just a Christian thing. The whole world is talking about Israel and the Jews all of the time. So Wednesday morning, every, mo every morning I get up and I check the news. I check local news, national news, international news. Every website I went to Wednesday morning had some story about Israel or the Jews. Here was a local news story. Every local news site covered this. At the jazz game, there were, there were some Jews that had signs that said, I am a Jew and I am proud, and they were asked to leave. Every local news website had this story. And then on Wednesday morning, same morning, every national news website I went to had this story. The Harvard president Claudine Gay, she resigned. They were talking about a variety of things, but it all kind of got stirred up because of comments about anti-Semitism or racism against Jews on college campuses. And then every website I went to internationally and nationally on Wednesday morning had these stories, talking about Israeli strikes on Hamas and fear of escalating tensions. I'm not cherry-picking these stories. Wednesday morning, January 3rd, every website I went to, local, national, and international, was either talking about the Jews or talking about Israel, which is interesting given this LifeWay uh, research survey that came out last month. They interviewed 1,200 American Christians, and they were talking to them about Hamas and Israel and Palestine. 
But that's not what caught my eye. This is what caught my eye. 73% of American Christians say the Bible doesn't influence their views on Israel, which is remarkable to me because the Bible talks a lot about Israel. The whole world is talking about this tiny nation in the Middle East. So 100% Christians, we should let the Bible inform our view of Israel. You see, the Christian faith is fundamentally Jewish. The Bible is a Jewish book written by Jews about Jews, and it talks about a Jewish Messiah, Jesus. The Old Testament is a story of how the Jewish people got started. The New Testament is a story of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, when he arrived. The Old Testament, the New Testament written about Jews by Jews. Christmas, which we just celebrated, is when the whole world celebrates when a Jew was born who claimed to be the Messiah in the land of the Jews has prophesied by a bunch of Jewish prophets. It's no wonder then that the first Christians were all Jews, but then something totally unexpected started to happen in the first century. Non-Jews or Gentiles started to believe in Jesus as the Messiah and the Jewish people in general did not believe in Jesus. So much so that now, according to a Pew estimate, there's about 8 billion people on the planet. 2.38 billion of them claim to be Christians. And down at the bottom there, 350,000 of them are Jewish Christians. That's 0.015%, which means 99.985% of the Christians around the planet are not Jewish. They're Gentiles. So the first Christian church was basically all Jews. Fast forward 2,000 years, and now the number is totally flipped, and the Christian church is basically all non-Jewish. So from 33 AD to 2023 AD, there's been a complete reversal of the demographic of the Christian church. And so that has led many Christians to decide there is no future for Israel. They go, the Jews missed the prophecies. They missed their Messiah. The Gentile church, the non-Jewish church, has replaced the Jews, the Jewish Christian church. So many Christians go, the Jews, they're old news. The Jewish people did miss their Messiah 2,000 years ago. They're still waiting for him. Over the holidays, I saw a few posts like this. These are Israeli soldiers singing a song, longing for the coming of their Messiah. And they're singing this song about their Messiah will come someday. So the whole world is talking about the Jewish people in Israel, which is crazy to me because it's 2,000 years almost since their nation was destroyed. You remember in 70 AD, Rome conquered Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. They scattered the Jewish people. And yet the Jews have remained a people for 2,000 years. Most people tend to assimilate or blend in, but the Jews remain. Came across an interesting quote, King Louis XIV of France, he once asked the philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal, give me proof for God. Give me evidence for the existence of God. And Blaise Pascal said this, well, your majesty, the Jews. Their existence is frankly remarkable because every people group tends to fade into history. Languages are lost. People intermarry. Cultures disappear. Traditions disappear. People assimilate. My people are from, I come from, my ancestors come from Europe, but I'm an American now. Things change. I don't walk around saying, good day, governor. <laughs> but the remarkable thing is that the Jews have remained a distinct people for 2,000 years. 
even without a country of their own. Nobody was thrown out of the jazz game because they were waving a sign that said, I'm a Phoenician and I'm proud. No Harvard president resigned because of her statement about the Mayans. No one's worried that the Romans and Greeks are going to start a war that's going to become World War III. People assimilate. They blend in. But God has preserved the Jews. But when we talk about the role of the Jews in the Christian church, there's a variety of opinions. So we covered Hebrews a couple years ago. There's four main views in the church about the role of the Jews, talking about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So here are the four views regarding the church in Israel related to the Old and New Covenant. View one, the church has replaced Israel as a participant in the New Covenant. This is a very popular view in Christianity. View two, the new covenant is with the nation of Israel only. That's kind of a minority position. View three, there are two covenants, one with Israel and one with the church, a minority position. And then view four, there's only one new covenant to be fulfilled at the end times with Israel, but participated in with the gospel by the church today. So if you want to dig into this, this is from May of 2022 in our Hebrew study. But I said then, this fourth view recognizes that Jesus' death on the cross provided the basis for starting a new covenant, but it also accepts the unconditional nature of God's promises to Israel. So we're going to unpack this question, does Israel have a future? That's where we're going in this teaching. This is a little infographic I made you all. So across the bottom, you see those are the Roman chapters, Romans chapter 1 all the way to 16. The, the blue, that's the number of counts of the word Gentile or Greek. The orange, that's the number of counts of the word Jew or Israel. So you see season 1 and season 4 very clearly talk about this topic of the Jews and the Gentiles. So right now where we are, this is a major theme of season 4. One more introductory comment before I start on the verses. Does God keep his promises? Now, why do I ask that? Because God has made some remarkable promises to the people of Israel, the Jews. I'm going to cover a few today. Again, many Christians think these promises don't apply anymore. These were promises that are now for the church. Look at what Jeremiah wrote. These are verses that talk about the certainty with which Israel can expect God to fulfill his promises to them. Jeremiah 31, thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and fixed order of the moon and stars for light by night? Who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar? The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me. God's saying if you could take away the sun, the moon, and the stars, then Israel would cease to be. That's a pretty intense promise. So that was all intro. Let's pray, and then we're going to move through 24 verses. <laughs> Lord, we thank you for tonight. I do thank you, God, that your word is so relevant and so timely that we can read the news and we can see people groups from thousands of years ago in our news today because your word is living and active. Lord, we ask right now that your living and active word would move through this room. You'd be teaching, convicting, encouraging your sons and daughters. We say all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Romans chapter 11 is the most comprehensive, complete chapter in the Bible on the future of Israel. We're going to see that God is not done with the Jewish people. Verses 1 through 10 talk about how this is a partial hardening of Israel. 
Paul writes, Romans chapter 11, verse 1, I ask then, Paul says, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So in the first century, the church was changing. It was becoming less Jewish, more Gentiles. The Gentiles are accepting Jesus. The Jews, for the most part, are rejecting Jesus. Paul's asking the question, is God done with the Jewish people? And Paul's answer is, by no means. In the strongest Greek possible, it's like, no way. We might say it'll be a cold day in hell before that happens. What is Paul's first piece of evidence that God has not done with the Jewish people? He presents himself. He presents his Jewish credentials. He's like, I'm an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Other parts of the Bible, Paul presents his Jewish resume. It's impeccable. Paul is the super Jew. And yet he is a believer in Jesus Christ. And so the first example that this is not a complete hardening is Paul. Verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? So Paul submits another example. He takes his readers back to 1 Kings 18 and 19, the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. You remember the nation of Israel had rejected God. They're being led by the wicked King Ahab and the Queen Jezebel. The whole nation of Israel appears to have gone apostate. They're worshiping false gods. And then there's this dramatic showdown. Elijah says, gather the people. Get some of the prophets of the false gods. Build two altars. We're going to have a showdown. You remember what happens with Baal's altar? They try to get God to, their God to do something. Nothing happens. Elijah mocks him. He's like, maybe your God's on the toilet. And then he has God's altar soaked with water three times and he prays and fire from heaven comes down and consumes everything. And the Jewish people realize that Elijah's God is real and they kill the false prophets. But then what happened? Jezebel, the evil queen, she says, I'm going to kill Elijah right now. And Elijah's terrified and he flees for his life. Look what Elijah said, verse 3, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. I alone am left. They seek my life. He's basically saying, I'm the last believer on the earth. The whole nation is turned against you. It's not true. We'll read in a minute. But that brings up our first big idea on your handout. We need to be okay with standing alone. Our world trains us to think, well, what will my friends think? What will my coworkers think? What will my classmates think? The most important question is, what will God think? That has to shape everything we do. The, our, there are times that God calls us to make a stand for him alone. I think of the words of Jesus. He said, broad or well-traveled is the road that leads to destruction. If everybody thinks you're great, you might be walking the wrong direction. There is at times an unpopularity associated with following Christ. The shows people watch, the way they dress, the music they listen to, how they spend their money, how they talk, their sexual activity, their thoughts on dating and relationship and gender. It's most of the time it doesn't honor the Lord or it's wicked. Elijah thinks he is alone and he's depressed, but he's like, I'll still stand for the Lord. Verse 4, but what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Baal was the false god of this time. Even when Elijah thinks he's the last believer on the earth, he thinks the entire Jewish nation is turned against God. Even then, your second big idea 
It's not hopeless because God always has a team and a plan. God always has people with him, no matter how bleak things look. God's never like, oh, no, I'm out of options. <laughs> In spite of what Elijah thought, it's never hopeless. You might feel I'm totally alone. But God always has believers. God has given us this body of believers right here to love us and support us. But we can come to church, we think nobody gets me, nobody understands what's going on in my life. I've thought that at times. But I also think of the difficult things that God has used people in this church to help me walk through the last few years. People to love me and encourage me and pray for me and even correct me. Do you realize in your own life, God is always moving. God always has believers around you in this life and the next. God doesn't believe in no-win scenarios. He has a team. He has a plan. We might go, well, God, your church, it's 99.985% not Jewish. Israel has forgotten you. God says, I'm not done. I have a plan. Next verse, five. So too at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. We're not talking about carpet remnants. We're talking about a group of people chosen by God to be saved. In Elijah's time, we read there were 7,000 true believers. In the first century, there were true Jewish Christians. We think of the early Christians, Paul and the apostles. In our time, there are Jewish believers. I showed this slide a few weeks ago. There's about 16 million Jews around the planet, and there's 350 thousand of them that are Jewish Christians. You should pray for them. But God has people everywhere in churches and denominations and people groups. God always has a remnant chosen by grace. By grace. Do you see that phrase there? The remnant chosen by grace. Old Testament, New Testament. Today, God never leaves himself without a remnant. True believers. Yes, the Jewish people in general have rejected Jesus, but there are still Jewish believers even now. Verse 6, but if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. This verse is here in case you were not paying attention for the last 10 chapters, which said over and over and over again, we're saved by grace and not by works. Salvation is a gift. Grace is a gift. You don't earn gifts. Imagine at Christmas time, if you gave your kid a gift you're like, here you go, son, Merry Christmas. And they ran out of the room, they got a piggy bank, and they brought it back like, what do I owe you, Dad? No, that's not how Christmas works, son. It's a free gift. Sadly, many people today have missed the point that salvation is a free gift. Like we talked about a few weeks ago, it's very fortunate because salvation, if you had to earn it, nobody could do it. Verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So the nation of Israel wanted to be righteous, but they tried to be righteous through their good works. But a small portion of the Jews, the elect, they believed in faith and they're saved because God always has a group of believers. The rest, it says, were hardened, which is a scary phrase. The rejection of the Jews by of Jesus by the Jews has led to many of them having a diminished capacity to receive Jesus. Verse 8, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor and eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. This is from Deuteronomy 29 and Isaiah 29, which is important because the Old Testament prophesied or predicted that the nation of Israel would miss God's plan. They wouldn't see Jesus as their Messiah. Which brings up our next big idea. Those who refuse to listen are eventually unable to hear. 
Now, how could this play out in our lives? Maybe you get to know a group of Christians. Somebody there calls you on something in your life. You get hurt, you move on. You arrive at a new group of Christians. Somebody calls you on something in your life. You get hurt, you move on. You arrive at a new group of Christians. Somebody calls you on something. You get hurt, you move on. The only common denominator in that scenario is you or me moving on. <laughs> we don't want to be that person. Romans 11:8 says, those who refuse to listen are eventually unable to hear. We have to have a tender heart to God's voice through his word, through other believers, through preaching of his word, through our godly friends, through the pastors. We do not want to have a hard heart. We want to have a tender voice to God speaking to us. Our next verse is 9. David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block, a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. This is another Old Testament prophecy from Psalm 69. David also anticipated the judgment of the Jews. What does it mean your table? When we think of our table, we think of where we would sit with our family and our friends for fellowship and food, but a table could become a trap. Why? Because the Jews were given the Old Testament and the law and the prophets, but then they start trusting in their good works to save them. They miss Jesus. They stumble over Jesus. And so all the blessings they've received become a trap because they're trusting in things that can't save them. Our next verse, there's a subject change. Paul's going to talk about now in verses 11 through 25 how this is only a temporary hardening of the Jews. The they here is the Jews. Verse 11, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. This is another important question Paul raises. Is the current hardening of Israel or the Jews permanent? That's what fall means, a permanent fall. And what's his answer here? It's the same phrase, by no means, the strongest Greek. What's the purpose of this hardening? Brian shared an illustration last week. Imagine this little girl, she's given the teddy bear, but she doesn't care about it. She throws it on the floor. And then this neighbor kid comes over and he loves the teddy bear. And he's like playing with it. And he's spending all of his time with the teddy bear. And that makes the girl jealous. She's like, oh, that's my teddy bear. Hey, that's my toy. I want it back. So God's plan is to save Gentiles or non-Jews now, makes the Jews jealous, and then a bunch of them eventually turn back to the Lord. Hey, that's my Messiah. I want him back. <laughs> Next big idea. This is the big theme of Romans chapter 11. God is using his offer of salvation to the Gentiles to draw the Jews back to himself. So the current hardening of the Jews is not God's final word on the subject. God has a plan. Gentiles getting saved is designed to make the Jews jealous. This was also predicted in the Old Testament. This is a remarkable verse here in Isaiah 49, talking about the Messiah, talking about Jesus, the things that he would do. Isaiah 49, now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. When Jesus came the first time, like we discussed, the Jews in general rejected him. But there is a future time coming when Jesus will bring Israel back to him. 
Verse 6, right after this in Isaiah, says the Jews will then be a light to the Gentile nations. And so this prophecy is talking about the future spiritual rebirth of Israel and the greater salvation of the Gentiles through that. Okay, verse 12. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Think about what that's saying. If the Jews in general missed Jesus, and that led to 2.38 billion people claiming to be Christians now, and that's not counting 2,000 years of church history, Paul's saying if their failure to see Jesus has brought that much goodness into the world, what will happen when the Jewish people actually turn to their Messiah? This was prophesied in the Old Testament in Zechariah chapter 8. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. So a day is coming when the Jews will be the messengers of God to the world. This is a role they were supposed to do in the first place. That 10 to 1 ratio there shows just how effective the Jews will be at leading the Gentiles back to God. There's these remarkable prophecies in the Old Testament. I enjoyed studying them. So in the first century, the church was basically all Jews. Now the church is basically all non-Jews. But these verses are saying there's a day coming when the Jews will turn back to God and lead even more non-Jews to God, which is kind of wild. Next verse, 13. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. So now he's speaking directly to you and me, the non-Jewish readers. Paul was called to be a missionary to the Gentiles. Acts 9.15 said that. He magnifies his ministry. He's like, I have this incredible role God has given me. Why does he magnify his ministry? Verse 14, in order to somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. That's what we talked about. As Paul goes around preaching the gospel to the non-Jews, he hopes to make his fellow Jewish countrymen jealous and turn to God. Verse 15, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Again, Jews turning away from God has led to 2.38 billion Gentile Christians, what happens when they turn back to God? It will be an unbelievable miracle. The whole world will stop and be like, wait, what? The Jews are now following Jesus Christ? That would get a lot of people's attention. Next verse. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. This is from Leviticus 15, I'm sorry, Leviticus 23 and Numbers 15. This is the portion given to God as a tithe, which sort of consecrates the rest that you keep. The 10% given to God kind of makes the 90% holy, similar to the Jews and Gentiles. Continuing verse 16, if the root is holy, so are the branches. So now Paul's going to give us an illustration from the plant kingdom, talking about what's happening here. He's going to talk about olive trees. Now, what is the root here? Most Bible scholars think these are the promises that God made to Abraham and the patriarchs. Think about what the angel of the Lord, or possibly pre-incarnate Jesus, said to Abraham in Genesis 22. He said, 
I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sands that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God is promising Abraham, you're going to become this father of a huge nation. You're going to get the promised land and you're going to be a blessing to the whole earth. So that's the root. God's promise to Abraham. Next verse, 17. If some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. So we've got to dig into olive trees here for a minute. So first century, people ate three, consumed three main things, grain, wine, and olive oil. Olive oil came from olive trees. Olive trees are this great source of like healthy fats and nutrients. So people in the Middle East have been cultivating olive trees for thousands of years. There are olive trees today that are alive that they think were alive in the time when Christ walked the earth. And olive trees grow super slow. And so you got to cultivate them to get their olive oil production going. You see this photo on the left there. You see that big, massive trunk. Somebody's cut off all the old dead branches and they've grafted in new branches. I cultivate my trees. I cut off dead branches and branches that aren't bearing fruit. And then you can graft in branches. We have a cherry tree in my house. It's got like four different types of cherries growing on it. Not right now because it's winter, but there's four different branches grafted onto the same trunk. So again, the trunk is, that's like the root is God's promises to Abraham. Branches that are cut off are the Jews who rejected Jesus. The branches grafted in, those are the Gentiles who believe the promises of God. They believe in Jesus, which is editorial comment to me, a reminder that just because you're in like a place of blessing, you still got to believe. Your parents were Christians. That's awesome. But that's a huge blessing. But like, do you believe in Jesus? God doesn't have grandkids. Next verse, Paul warns the Gentiles, verse 18, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. So don't be proud of your position, Gentile. Don't look down on the Jews who miss Jesus. God's promises to believers, they started with Abraham, they moved to the Jews, and now they've moved to the Gentiles. This is all about who God is and what God has done. This is not about us. This is about God and what God has done. So the Jews were removed because they did not believe. The Gentiles, believers, only remained because they believe. Our next big idea, there's no place for pride in the church. You should not be proud about something you did not earn. Everything we have, God gave us. Our next verse, verse 19. Then you will say, the branches were broken off so I might be grafted in. Again, this repeat of this thing, the um theme, the unbelieving Jews have been removed, the believing Gentiles have been grafted in. Verse 20, that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. This is godly fear. The original word meant to have a godly respect or reverence. You don't want to offend someone. Don't be proud. God puts you in this position. He can take you out. So how do we stand fast? You see right there, we stand fast through what? Faith. We stand in our position through faith. Your race, your religion, your money, your intelligence, your heritage, your ethnicity, your good looks, your good works. 
None of that matters. The only thing that keeps you standing in your position is faith. Israel has fallen for now. The Gentiles are standing by faith. But when the full amount of the Gentiles comes in, then the Bible says a harvest is going to start among the Jews. That's where Caleb's going next week, verse 25. But we're in verse 21. If God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. That's sobering. God won't spare anyone who doesn't believe. This should not be a paralyzing fear, but a humble fear that doesn't take God for granted. Our next big idea, no Gentile will be spared if they ignore the gospel. Because if God did not hesitate to prune out the chosen people, the Jews, why do you think he would be nicer to you or me, the outsider, the Gentile? Our next verse, 22. Note then this kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. So there is no conflict between God's kindness and God's severity. God doesn't wrestle with, should I be kind or should I be severe? God is perfect in how he acts every time. God's kindness is seen in his mercy for believers. God's severity is seen in his wrath towards unbelievers. There is no conflict in God between his kindness and his severity. Next verse, speaking of the Jews, 23, even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, I gotta love the double negative, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. Stated another way, if the Jewish people believe, God will graft them back in. God absolutely 100% has the power to graft the Jewish people back into the root. You go, right now, Josh, 98% of the Jews have rejected Jesus as their Savior. Well, God has the power to graft them in if they believe. Is your God that powerful? Make it real. Maybe you have unbelieving friends and family. You've been praying for their salvation for years. You're tempted to give up and quit praying for them. Don't. God does amazing things. Keep praying. One more Old Testament verse. This is from Zechariah 12. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, again, talking about the Jews, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. This is written way before Jesus. God will in his perfect timing bring his spirit to work. We see the spirit will cause people to mourn. They will think of the one they have pierced. This is a prophecy foreshadowing Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. So the nation of Israel does not need to be rejected forever. God will graft them in when they repent. Our final verse, speaking again to the Gentiles, 24. If you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? If God can take a bunch of pagan Gentiles, most of us for the majority, and by golly, and save us, then by golly, God can save a bunch of chosen people, the Jews. This is where Caleb is going next week of the rest of chapter 11. So does God keep his word? Even Israel? Yes. Last big idea. God's promises never fail. Think about some of the promises God has given to us. He says, I will strengthen you when life is hard. He will never leave us or forsake us. God will give us everything we need for life and godliness. God will not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. 
God says he'll work everything together for the good of those who love him. So Christian, you have been given mighty promises of God and they never fail. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have grafted us back into the root. Lord, we thank you that your promises are what this is all about. You are faithful to do what you said you're going to do. God, we thank you that you have had a plan since the beginning of human history and we get to be part of that. God, we are the adopted kids. We get all the good stuff. But God, we want more and more Gentiles to get saved. We want more and more Jews to get saved, Lord. We ask that you would use our church in a mighty way this year to see more people get grafted into the root so they can experience your blessing. We say all this in Jesus' name. Amen.